Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 271, my God, are we getting high, of the Fun With Cars, Formula One, and other motorsports podcast, or episode 5 of 2021. I'm Robin Warner, and today I'm joined by the Florida Refreshed Englishman, Christopher Roche. Hey, Chris. Hey, Robin. How are you? I'm quite well. I am in, I'm at home, feeling fine, feeling warm. Today is Sunday afternoon, February 7th, and we are going to talk about the 2021 Formula One schedule and a lot of things going on, uh, rule changes, driver changes, and schedule changes. And uh, I think we should just jump right into it. Chris, where do you want to start? Um, we could start with the announced car launches. So those are coming up soon. Yes, let's do it. So first team to launch their 21 challenger um will be uh mclaren on the 15th of fe uh, february just missing valentine's day the mcl 35m is what that chassis is going to be called ncl or mcl m mcl sort of what is <laughs> go for it please yeah <laughs> yeah so it's like mclaren just forget the aaron <laughs> ah i see so it's i'm curious did they have any kind of pronouncement why they dropped the p4 part of the name that has been tradition you know i don't know if this is the first chassis that is not an mp4 I'll, i i didn't research that honestly um because i've got a feeling that they probably did the switcheroo after ron dennis got unceremoniously kicked out of the team uh, so it might have been the case for a couple of seasons i'll have to go back and do some research on that one but um, good old Williams, who are going to launch on March the 5th, have kept the FW nomenclature. So there's, their chassis is going to be called the 43B, and it's the first B chassis they've used since 1995. So, mm. um, so yeah, they're sticking with the Frank Williams designation, as opposed to McLaren, which dropped the McLaren Project 4, uh, which is the MP4. And the Project 4 was what Ron Dennis introduced to McLaren when he entered uh, the team in, in the 80s. Right, because I know in the original McLaren days, in the Bruce McLaren days, it was just M, M6, for example. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. And uh, so it's interesting. MCL, I guess it, the CL gives you the same syllable count as uh, P4. So I suppose there's, um, there's symmetry in that regard. But, you know, whatever. Okay, we're, we're, let's, uh, let's move on. What, what else do we have coming? So we have um, next up after McLaren is Alpha Tauri, um, who are launching their car on the 19th, uh, followed by Alpha Romeo on the 22nd. And then Mercedes is launching on the 2nd of March. And, uh, and then, as I mentioned, Williams on the 5th. And no other team uh, yet has announced uh, their launch dates. So obviously, we've got the likes of Ferrari and Alpine and, uh, and a few others that have yet to announce their date. But of course, uh, the first test doesn't start till the 12th of March. So uh, we've had some teams actually launch their chassis on the day of the first test in the, in the last couple of seasons. Sure, of course. And just for the few that aren't already aware, Alpine is what Renault now call themselves, uh, which is a fun little thing. And a bit more uh, understandable, in my mind at least, um, it is no longer Racing Point. It is now Aston Martin Racing the fun quirk in that one is that it's not Aston Martin racing because Aston Martin bought into the team. It's because 
Um, Lawrence Stroll, the owner of Racing Point, bought into Aston Martin. <laughs> so he's like, well, I own whatever it is, a quarter of it through his consortium. And uh, he's like, so I'm going to use the name. Why not? So that's a that's a fun little anomaly. Um, and one so, thing so, I want to point well, out real quick before we uh, get too far. Well, um, I can just answer the question on the MCL. So it oh, started yeah, in, in oh, 2017. Yeah, so Zach, when ah. Zach Brown took the helm and Ron Dennis left, they started with the MCL designation. And so the first chassis with that naming convention was 32. And so uh, they're now up to 35. That lines up because I am generally speaking three to four years behind everybody <laughs> so that mm -hmm. that that's consistent with things um one fun point this is a little bit of self-congratulation uh for us is that uh, we're on episode five of 2021 episode five of 2020 came october 22nd of 2020 so wow. so uh yes i am several years behind but we are definitely gaining we are well ahead of 2020 in 2021 thus far so just a little bit of self-congratulations although ironically enough this is the first formula one focused podcast that i've done this year because we had uh, the announcement that things were changing a little bit and then a whole lot of imsa stuff to cover because of uh, the 24-hour race coming up which was a fantastic race after 24 hours the top three teams were covered by i think it was five seconds in the top class it was just wonderful wonderful racing and it included a lot of uh, formula one talent and uh, in that process i was able to secure um, a factory driver porsche factory driver and patrick long and absolute racing legend hurley haywood for interviews so super excited to, to be able to do that and i am hoping to keep some interviews coming throughout the year but i'm not going to depend on interviews to put together a podcast so i guess that's just a little bit of uh note keeping for uh, for the podcast itself. Um, one thing you mentioned, Chris, is that the first test isn't until the 12th of March, and the first round of the season is now March 26th, the weekend of March 26th. Um, the race itself is on the 28th, which is later than planned and not in Australia. And uh, this is part of a 23-race schedule for 2021 that is still obviously heavily impacted by COVID. Yeah, that's right. So so the testing, so the one change from previous years is is the testing consists of one test period of three days. So from the 12th to the 14th. So in the past, we've had uh, multiple uh, test periods. So group clumps of days, uh, at least two series of tests or even three in the past, mostly uh, or predominantly held in Barcelona. So now we just have three single days of testing in Bahrain and then the season starts so really limited running pre-season and then you're right we've unfortunately Australia's a casualty but the good news for Aussie fans and, and uh, fans of the Australian Grand Prix is that it's still on the calendar it's just been uh, bumped way back to the uh, to the other end so uh, it looks like November 21st is the potential date of the Australian Grand Prix if uh, the calendar stays the way it's currently looking. Which is ironic because that would be the weekend before the Saudi Arabia, Saudi Arabian Grand Prix, December 5th, which is new and interesting. And couple that with the fact that we're now doing the official three-day test 
in Bahrain, and we still have the Bahrain Grand Prix, and it's the opener, and we still have Abu Dhabi, and we have Azerbaijan. The Middle East is playing a mega role in Formula One, uh, especially during these COVID times. Yeah, the Saudi Arabian race isn't without controversy, is it? Um, but uh, it'll be it'll be uh, somewhere different, a new track. Maybe there'll, there'll be some some good racing uh, if we can avoid the politics for that weekend. Um, yeah, we do have a couple of notables. As a, so we, we'll, we'll start in Bahrain, as you mentioned, then we'll go uh, to Imola in April. The third race on the calendar is still to be confirmed, but it looks like it'll be a trip back to Portimao. Um, and then the schedule gets back to its normal non-COVID type look. So we go to Barca, Monaco, uh, Azerbaijan, Montreal, France, Austria, UK, Hungary, Belgium, which is all very typical. And then Zandvoort, which was supposed to be on the calendar for last year, actually hopefully will make it this year. So September the 5th, we'll go to the sand dunes in Holland, which will be, uh, which will be very interesting. It has a banked corner. And of course the hordes of uh, uh, Max Verstappen fans will be very excited. And I'm sure will be out in force, especially if he's got a championship title run uh, by then. Um, and then we go to Monza, Sochi, Singapore, Japan, US, so big date for all of us, uh, US-based uh, race fans. So October 24th, hopefully we'll be in Austin to uh, cheer on the guys there. And then Mexico, Brazil, Australia, and as you've mentioned, Saudi and uh, Abu Dhabi is the season finale all the way uh, in mid-December on the 12th. So uh, Which so is a long my old birthday, season plan. Actually. Oh, there we go. Yeah. I'm curious, do you, do you think this is going to hold? No. We're not through this. <laughs> we're not through. We're not through this pandemic, and we've got new variants coming that uh, could throw a real wrench in things. I'm still quite nervous. Uh, for example, for round five for Monaco, I'm very, very sp- suspicious of that actually happening, and I'm also a bit. I'm raising my eyebrow over seeing two TBCs on the schedule. Uh, one of them is Saudi Arabia, but the you know as you said, I would love to go to Portimao, but the TBC makes me very nervous. Yeah, so the, the key number is fifteen races. So again, like last year, we need to have uh, at least fifteen races to to really constitute a championship and fulfil um, Formula One's obligations to broadcasters. So we'll we'll have a we'll have a season. I've no doubt about that. We'll have uh, I'm sure at least fifteen races, whether or not. It'll be all these tracks, and in this order, I think um, you know will be will be determined. I think the European season kicking off in May looks like it's going to come too soon for most of continental Europe with their vaccination rollout. So they may not be wild about having uh, a lot of international travellers uh, touring touring the continent. But we'll have to see what the situation looks like, uh, you know, close to those dates. I think you know um, some other parts of the world. Uh, further ahead, either either with with still low COVID cases or better situation on vaccination. So you know those, those might be parts of the world that Formula One has to visit and have most of the championship base there if, if uh, Europe's still in trouble come the summer. Well, I wouldn't rule out having half the season in New Zealand and just uh, keep things nice and tidy. Uh, the it's it's fascinating to me because Formula One did a fantastic job last year of having a regulation and a system and a series of checks to keep the season going with the pandemic and 
you know, Nico Hulkenberg uh, always having his phone on the ready on a Friday. And I'm curious, I and hope that they fully plan on maintaining the same levels of caution because, you know, I'm always reminded that this is, I've been saying this a lot, 70% of the uh, mountain climbing accidents on Mount Everest, 70% happen on the descent. Just because we have a vaccination, a vaccination and it is rolling out does not mean we're in the clear. And this is actually a better time and more important time to be cautious, not a time to start relaxing. And I really hope that there is still the same levels of sense of maintaining protocol and strict protocols at that so that the season can happen, so that racing can proceed without, uh, you know, a super spreader event, as it were. Yeah, absolutely. And I think countries are at a point where they're, you know, you just have to watch what's going on in Australia uh, and their attempts to host a tennis championship, uh, the first Grand Slam of the season. The people have been, of each nation, have been through so much at this point that they really don't want to take a step backwards in terms of uh, clearing the COVID cases and, and reducing the deaths just to just to allow international sporting events to take place. So there's not being, there's, there's not as much latitude uh, not as much tolerance as maybe there was um, earlier on in the COVID pandemic because uh, we just keep hit, being hit, hit with waves and it's getting old, isn't it, for everybody? So um, I think, but, the, you know, the good thing is we're on, we're, things are looking up. Hopefully we'll be out of this uh, situation before too long. Things can get back to normal. What is the race that you are most looking forward to? Uh, well, it's always fun. I mean, I think we all enjoyed a little bit of throwback Formula One last season, going back to some of the classic uh, tracks, um, and uh, and and it's always fun to see the cars on a, on a different on a different circuit. I mean, I've never watched a Formula One race at Zandvoort. It looks like a pretty interesting uh, track, so I, th I think that would probably be the one for me. Um, new venue in Europe. And I think the, if, if spectators are allowed, seeing the passion of the Dutch uh, cheering on Max will be will definitely be a highlight. Yeah, for me, it's got to be Abu Dhabi. Um, for some <laughs> reason, well, no, hear me out. Not. Everyone knows. Everyone knows that it's fifteenth uh, time is the charm, or whatever. So since we've had 14 doll races there in a row, this next one's going to be epic, and everyone knows this. It's going to be a barn burner. Uh, no, in, in all honesty, I think that the, the race that I'm most looking forward to is, unfortunately, a TBC that you mentioned. I, I'm really hopeful that Portimao works out. I absolutely love that racetrack in Portugal. I think it's just a brilliant, brilliant use of natural landscape and it's got this wonderful combination of corners, slow and fast, and epic straightaway, and on and on. And so, and I thought it delivered a brilliant race in 2020. So uh, I'm, I'm hopeful for that as well. And I'm curious to see if Bahrain delivers again. Bahrain proved quite good uh, at providing uh, fantastic racing. Um, and also, you know, a, a stark reminder of the progress still that still needs to be made in terms of racing safety. But, uh, you know, I'm, I'm actually quite looking forward to the season opener, uh, knocking on wood that it that it actually happens. And, uh, yeah, Portimao as well if it happens. I'm, I'm still, as I said before, I'm still quite nervous of Monaco even happening. That's a very densely populated place. 
And the 20th of May is early, I think. So interestingly enough, I was reading the other day that they have changed the track at Barcelona. So I think it's turn six or seven, which is a left-hander after an intermediate straight, which was one of the DRS zones last year, has been reprofiled. So rather than being sort of a very sharp left and another sharp turn that was being taken as one corner, they've reprofiled it to make it more of a graceful curve. And um, hopefully that, that, that will, you know, assist a racing or better racing in Barcelona which has been a bit of a problem track the last few seasons so uh, I don't know if this is actually happening but maybe there's also an openness open-mindedness to, to changing something at uh, Abu Dhabi as well because that track layout as we talked about last time needs to be looked at to see how it can be uh, re- you know modified to make closer racing passing more uh, conducive yeah agreed and I, to that end I'm I'm going to keep a very close eye on Imola. That race was not Abu Dhabi bad, but it was it left a lot to be desired in my point of view. And if if Imola wants to stay on the calendar, I think they're we're going to have to come up with a better solution. Yeah, it's the same. It's a shame that they picked Imola, not Mugello. I'm not quite sure why that that uh, track was selected out of a you know desire to have another Italian race I think we all support that but Mugello I think was a cracker Um, but maybe Imola was willing to to pony up a bit more uh, money but uh, um, interesting so I think uh, the other the other sort of format uh, subject that we should cover is the um, reverse grids that have been talked about Um, reverse grid qualifying races let me let me let me get that yes. out. Was being yes. talked about for this season, and that's now being that's now being officially ruled out. That is not happening. But okay, some good. Saturday, I thought that some, was effectively laughed out of the room. Well, it got voted down three times apparently, but it was somehow was still still on the table. Uh, now it's been removed for twenty one and, and and probably subsequent seasons. But they're still talking about running sprint races on a Saturday. I'm not quite sure what that means if a sprint race will replace qualifying or um or how that's going to work but so it won't be a reverse qualification race but it'll be a sprint race so what that format looks like and if it actually happens this year it sounds like it's still maybe a possibility if the teams are up for it yeah i don't know i you know the so the 24 hours of daytona Actually, they did that. They they had a shorter race. I believe it was a two-hour race. And that determined qualifying position. And, you know, that worked. But I feel just innately in my, in my bones that that makes much more sense for an endurance race, which is an inherently different format. So if you go from a two-hour sprint race to determine the grid, which adds excitement to it, and then those same cars then compete for 24 hours straight. That's much different than, oh, they're going to be on the racetrack for a half an hour and then an hour and a half the next day. To me, that just, it doesn't feel appropriate to me. And maybe I'm just stuck in tradition, but I, I'm just seeing that's an easy way to spend a lot more money in Formula One and they're trying to reduce costs. I don't think they're going to get the same returns and excitement as a result. Knockout qualifying is intriguing, and there's a lot to pay attention to and keep keep you interested, and there are surprises. I don't see why they keep trying to fix something that isn't broken. Yeah, I, um, 
I don't know. Do you think you'd draw a lot more viewers if it was a race on a Saturday rather than the qualifying session? Do you think the the nuances of qualifying and the and the three period formats just maybe just too complex for the casual fan? Whereas if it's a race, they're more inclined to tune in. I, that's the only thing I can conclude. I mean, I've always watched qualifying. I've always followed qualifying. I have since I started watching Formula One. So I'm not the right person to answer that question. It's not going to make a difference to me. I'll tune in either way. I, I guess the casual fan, though, may be drawn into it. If it's if it's billed as a race, that's probably what they're going for. I suppose. But I also think that a lot more people would tune in if the drivers had to arm wrestle for position. <laughs> Or if they had um, three-legged, uh, yeah, three-legged uh, burlap sack <laughs> racing with the teams, and uh, all kinds of things. I just there's also a line between pure competition in motorsport and entertainment, and I don't know. I think I might just be a little bit too stuck in tradition right now because having a sprint race, it's still motorsport. It would add another layer to things. But, uh, again, I would go back to the cost argument, and I would say that do something to spice up practice, perhaps. Uh, but even then, I mean, that's a whole other level because there's a lot of interesting things that happen in practice as well. The original proposal was the, the grid for the qualifying race would be set in, in reverse championship order. So if this sprint race is going to be set in championship order, then you're not... I, I I agree. It just seems a little pointless. Or are you going to run qualifying before the sprint race, which then sets the grid for the full race? It all just seems so contrived, doesn't it? I mean, yeah. uh, it all, I, we'll have to see what they conclude. And I guess if they try it, then I'm open-minded and I'll see if I like it or not and make and, and draw a conclusion at that point. I mean, the other thing is they're going to reduce the length of FP1 and 2 from 90 to 60 minutes. So now all of the free practice sessions are going to be only 60 minutes long. So they'll only have, you know, 180 minutes to set the cars up before qualifying, which I think we all agree is, is probably not a bad bad move. I think yeah. um, the less time they have to, to dial the cars in, the more uh, variation you may get in qualifying, then you have cars out of position for the race and therefore, you yeah. know, you get a bit more passing. But it's still, you know, it, it sticks to the established uh, way that Formula One has worked for decades, and, uh, and so therefore you're not you're not really getting away from tradition. Do you want to know what worked really well? Going to Germany when it was nine degrees Celsius outside. Mm. Going to new racetracks where they didn't have mountains of data. Trying you know going to Bahrain and running just the outer loop format. Those kinds of changes. Bigger variations in weather uh, and new tracks and new track layouts, that brought novelty and nuance that really worked well, I thought. And I don't see why we can't have a wider variation in weather conditions and still expect to race and things like that. Plus, the uh, Formula One tire is supposed to get more durable. No, I think the Formula One tire should be less durable. And not to the point of failure, but to the point of wearing out and causing more strategic decisions being made about pitch strategy. Well, That's where well, racing can be more interesting without these, like, adding silliness. Yeah, I mean, we'll come on to tyres, I think, a bit more. But, but I think, for me, fundamentally, I don't want to see Friday sessions go. There's been a lot of talk about compressing the Formula 1 
Grand Prix weekend to two-day event, Saturday and Sunday. Um, but I think, particularly for the fans on the ground that are trying to visit races, whether they're local or flying in, you know, when we get when we get through COVID, to me, Friday's always been a wonderful opportunity to access, you know, the Formula One. Um, series on a, on a relatively affordable budget, right? And if you start restricting it to a two-day event, I could see pricing, you know, continuing to go up for access on the Saturday and Sunday. And, you know, people love to camp over a race weekend or, or make a whole big trip out of it. To me, compressing it to two days is, is a really bad idea. Uh, I, I really would be sad if we lost Fridays, and I think that would be a misstep. But I think you know, reducing the practice time is, but maintaining Friday seems like a good compromise. Yeah, you know, I, I, I'm I'm with you on that entirely. And you know, I, I I don't mind having a busy race weekend of different series being there: Porsche Super Cup, Ferrari Challenge, uh, for the low level stuff. And then if you can combine in Europe, let's say a DTM weekend or. Uh, maybe not quite world endurance but you know have some different racing series and obviously f2 and f3 i'd absolutely love you know pack that in there as best you can uh keep the weekends interesting in that regard but uh don't shorten them I, i'm i'm 100 with you okay should we uh do you want to get into the regs now or should we talk yes. about just oh, confirm you've been, the runners and you've riders been doing some beautiful segues here uh, <laughs> so all right quick, regulations quick. it is Yes. So I have a so it, and just so you can think of the next segue, I want to talk about driver changes next. I have this quick list of rule changes that I'm going to quickly scurry down, and then you can elaborate however you wish. Uh, we've got reduced downforce coming with um, reducing the floor. They're making the diffuser less effective, as well as um, some fiddly bits with the rear brake ducts. The cars are now going to be a little bit heavier, um, 749 kilograms, which is 1,651 pounds, roughly speaking, which is awfully close. That's a, effectively the weight of an Indy car now, maybe still a little bit under. Um, uh, for Mercedes, the dual-axis steering is gone. Apologies to you guys. One thing that was interesting is it was a little bit new. I wasn't quite exactly clear how this is happening, but they're also going to tighten up the ability for teams to copy each other, um, and this was, if you'll, uh, you'd be shocked by this, I'm sure. This was a little bit focused on Racing Point's car from last year. And then finally, this one was interesting. They're now allowing more natural fiber composites to be used, although the fact that they're allowed, I don't think we should expect them in 2021, but that was an interesting part of the rules that uh, Autosport pointed out that I found interesting. Yeah, so absolutely, that's that's the highlights. I guess from a bigger picture perspective, this is the, the key points of this. One is that we now have a token, token system that the teams uh, have to use tokens to do significant upgrades on their cars. That, that was introduced last year and runs into 21 because essentially the chassis is a carryover. The new rules aren't coming in until 22. And then we also have the introduction of the cost cap and restrictions on aero uh, performance in, enhancement. So... To, to, to talk about that in a bit more detail. So the cost cap is now $145 million. Uh, that excludes marketing, the cost of the driver's salaries and the three highest earners in each team. Um, and so it also excludes uh, capital expenditure. So if you want to upgrade your you know, CNC machines or whatever, that wouldn't fall into that budget. So that, that starts to level the playing field between you know, the haves and have-nots. I mean, some of the teams, some of the smaller teams who are running below that 
that cap amount, but it'll certainly bring the top spending teams back toward them. And then on top of that, um, where you finished the season last year affects how much time you can spend in the wind tunnel or using CFD simulation methods to develop the uh, aero performance of your car. That so one is William, really interesting. And this yeah. one, I do, I'm, it's much easier for me to support this reverse grid of sorts uh, as opposed to the qualifying stuff that was talked about. Yeah, so, so with the 10 teams... Uh, the fifth place team basically has a nominal standard whatever number of hours or time in the tunnel and then if you got higher than fifth you get less than that 100% so Mercedes only get 90% of that same allocated amount of time and at the other end of the grid Williams will have 112 and a half percent so essentially you know almost a quarter more time in the tunnel or using the, the computer methods to develop their car. So the, the goal obviously is to try and bring the field closer together because we know aero is, is the biggest factor in performance. So uh, this will give the, the, bottom, the bottom runners a chance to close, close the gaps and, and hopefully provide more interesting racing. Yeah, and I, I think that that's an interesting, uh, it's an interesting approach. And one thing that I found fascinating, so I learned of that rule uh, through a uh, through a YouTube video that Mercedes put together that said that it was not just the wind tunnel, but it was also CFD computation, computer right. fluid dynamics. So yeah, computational fluid dynamics. That's right. CFD. So yeah. this is essentially doing what they do in the tunnel, but you know, with computer simulation. Yeah, exactly right. And to me, that was that was fascinating on two levels because it's really trying to tamp down aero development whole cloth but secondly cfd was the less the less costly workaround to wind tunnels but still ultimately inferior to wind tunnels but to me that was kind of a sign that cfd has progressed enough that it's starting to get looked at and regulated just like wind tunnels are and i found that to be a fascinating point yeah that's right i mean you know in both racing and, and the passenger car world, I mean, computers are increasingly being used um, more and more to do virtual testing. And of course, it saves you the time to build parts and, and test and, and iterate on physical uh, properties or, or uh, vehicles. And, and you can do many more iterations and look at what looks like the right development direction uh, quickly. Well, and I think your line, of work, your line of work probably deals deals with this a lot because when you look at core structure of a car and crash testing that core structure virtually 250 times before you actually do it in real life once that's a huge cost saving benefit and also time benefit because the ability to just iterate from one structure to the next or one material thickness to the next next and see results a to b back to back without having to ram ram a structure into a wall that's i mean that's massive yeah but interestingly enough you know um as sophisticated as the computational tools are um you know they can they can still be prone to poor correlation so what the, mm. what the simulation is telling you isn't actually manifesting itself when you build and, and test the actual vehicle and and i think that's some of the reason why you've had teams like williams i mean under paddy Lowe, you know they they obviously took a, a major misstep um, in, in the development of their of their car and that can only be down to having problems with the level of correlation between your, your tools and, and 
and, and going down that path that ultimately leads to less downforce or peaky performance. Um, so I think it's for the teams that are on top of that and have really well developed processes and very high confidence in their simulation methods to their physical testing performance, they're, they're in good shape. But those teams that are still trying to you know, catch up and, and get those get those systems in place, this is actually going to be a hindrance, I think. Um, you know, and that's certainly in Williams's case, what they've been trying to fix. You know, they brought Patrick Head in to look at the overall uh, engineering organization and how, how they were designing and developing the cars. And they've been, you know, still um, trying to sort that out since he, since he had did that uh, initial assessment. And uh, um, so it's, uh, you know, from an from engineering point of view, I think all these restrictions that now create so many headaches because now you have to decide how much time, how much resource you want to, you know, want to apportion to a certain aspect of the vehicle, which is going to give you the maximum performance, you know, re return for the, the tokens or the time that you have. I mean, it's becoming even more <laughs> complicated in in, uh, in in developing the right strategy. And I think we're going to see some teams figure that out really well and continue to do well and other teams that are going to, you know, fall away because no matter that they get more time in the tunnel if they use it uh, badly it's not going to help them you know so i mean it, it's going to be fascinating i think this is the first time i've seen we've seen uh, weight weight used as a as a, a balancing me uh, metric in the past mm -hmm. uh, weight penalties and so i think we're all kind of used to the, how that ballast works and it gets put on and off the vehicle and you can see how uh, cars and drivers uh, perform with extra weight but this is going to be much more harder for the casual fan to understand what might be driving uh, performance improvements or reductions any yeah. given week and so it's going to be interesting no that's that's good and, and that's i really appreciate having your perspective on this as as uh, some people may remember you know you're an absolute expert in these types of things your experience over 20 years of experience um, I'm, I'll let you age yourself as much as you want. Uh, <laughs> but over 20 years' experience is in uh, structure, uh, chassis engineering, uh, frame engineering. And so you're very well uh, versed in uh, how these simulations work and, indeed, the issue with correlation. And so I really appreciate you, you making that point and you know, showing uh, that there's definitely still uh, real-world limitations to simulations because simulations are indeed not real life and wind tunnels aren't real life either i suppose but boy oh boy they're a lot close a lot closer so uh, i just really appreciate you including that perspective yeah i mean one of the point to make is that it's interesting how we've seen the teams use this flowvis liquid uh during practice practice sessions over the course of the last couple of seasons so this is where they basically spray this this fluid onto the car uh, before it goes, you know, around the track. And essentially, what what it can show them is how the air is moving over the over the different parts of of the of the chassis. So front wings and through the, the, the out of the diffuser and and the side pods and so on and so forth. So then they can actually get a visual reference point to what they were expecting, and then see if if they are getting you know reasonable correlation. So it's clear that the teams are using the limited running that they have at their disposal to confirm, you know, how well their whole engineering process from aero de development perspective is working. Yeah, yeah. Do do you want to go ahead and jump into the drivers for 2021? This is the one that I'm 
in many ways looking forward to speaking about the most. I think the last thing to talk about on regs, and you touched on it earlier, is regarding the new tyres. And, and I read the same thing you did, which is that Pirelli are claiming that they have developed new compounds that are more robust. So I guess the question that that's on my mind is, does that mean that the that the tyres are going to be particularly hard and just never wear out? And so we're just looking yes. at one stoppers all season? Or does it mean that now the drivers can push harder on the tyre? And, and they won't overheat. And that's really what's been the issue in the last few seasons is that, you know, they can, the car uh, and is limited entirely by the tyre overheating within the first, you know, couple of laps. And um, then it grains and then it loses a lot of performance. So the drivers try and keep it below that, that graining phase. And that works out to be the fastest overall way through a Grand Prix. Now, if they if it doesn't have that graining issue anymore and, and that they can push harder on the tyre, extract more performance from it, and it doesn't overheat, then what we might see is the, the drivers uh, at the limit for more of the Grand Prix, which I think would be a good thing. So I think I wouldn't necessarily infer from their statement that it just means that the, the, the compound is more uh, durable and will just last for a lot longer. Hopefully it means that they can race harder on the tyre. That's what I'm hoping anyway. Yes, but Chris, you're forgetting one very important thing, which it is absolutely our job to infer and from those inferences make strong accusations about them. <laughs> okay. And so I am just aghast that Pirelli would dare make the tire more durable when we, we want them to we want them to be like bubbles that just pop almost at random. And uh, you know, well, we had that. Time do we want more season. excitement in racing or not? Let's uh, let's let's add a big question mark. Is uh, this this tire may may last the entire Grand Prix? It it may shatter instantly and just shred everywhere. This is this is this is the Formula One that everyone wants and needs. Yeah, I'm not sure about. I want random uh, tire explosions. <laughs> what I what I'm looking for is a racy tire that they can push hard on. You know, I, I, I didn't I mind have the to old... say, though, I mean, we did not have... We had issues of, like, oh, the tires would last too long, doesn't last too long, whatever. We didn't have these issues when Michelin was the supplier and when Bridgestone was the supplier, at least not that I can remember. Is there something that... Is Pirelli being asked too much, or is Michelin just inherently better at this? Well, I think I think the point is, is that Pirelli are in a no-win situation, aren't they? So whatever they produce will be wrong. Uh, and, yeah. and it's the easiest, easiest part of the car to, you know, if you're going to complain about the quality of the racing, that's the first thing to point to. Um, I think having a tire war is a good thing. I think sometimes it can become unbalanced, but generally when we've had more than one tire provider in, in a Formula One season, it's usually resulted in some pretty interesting races and some lopsidedness. You'll have one tire compound that's better in certain tracks and the other manufacturers in different you know, and you'll get different levels of performance throughout a race because you, you, the tire construction is different or the compound works differently. So to me, the obvious answer is to stop making it a single spec tire and, and introduce, you know, another provider, whether that's Bridgestone, Goodyear, Michelin, whoever you want to pick. But getting back to a tire war, I think is a good thing. Yeah. Okay. Fair, fair enough. I certainly would welcome a tire war, but that would require another tire supplier. So... Yeah, and I think I don't think there's a there's a lack of interest in providing tires. I think the the FIA and Formula One just decided not to not to have that. And the reason 
for that, as I recall, is that they were trying to reduce, because obviously tyre testing drove a lot of the actual car testing requirement rates. So uh, uh, if I you see. want to reduce testing in season or out of season, then by having a single uh, single tyre provider eliminates the justification for testing. So if you bring a second supplier in, now they're going to want to go testing again. Oh, damn me in my short term, my short memory of such things. Yes, uh, you're, you're absolutely right. And uh, it's such a shame. But uh, again, we can still opine on the benefits of it. And um, doing so, it is our duty to blame Pirelli for all these woes. <laughs> uh, driver lineup. So yep. th- there's actually quite a lot going on here. The seven teams have new drivers coming in. There's eight driver changes in all, and there's three new rookies. Uh, two of those three rookies are going to one team, and uh, we, that's been much talked about. That is uh, the Alfa Romeo Racing. Oh, no, sorry. That is Haas F1 right next to Alfa Romeo on my list. Uh, yeah, Kimi uh, Raikkonen's not new. <laughs> yeah. um, and it is, it, it, that, is, that is where Mick uh, Schumacher is landing as well as Marzipan. Uh, the Nikita variety of marzipan, um, whom Nikita Mazepin, oh boy, I mean, he's the one that already stirred up controversy with social media stuff. I'm nervous about him already. <laughs> but uh, um, looking at the driver lineup real quickly, um, let me just scroll down the list here. Red Bull Racing now has Sergio Perez. McLaren now has Daniel Ricciardo. Um, Aston Martin slash Racing Point now has Sebastian Vettel. Uh, Renault slash Alpine has Fernando Alonso. Uh, Ferrari has Carlos Sainz Jr. Um, Alfa Tori now has Yuki Tsunoda. No, Tsunoda. And, uh, and then Haas we covered. And then it's only Williams, Alfa Romeo, and Mercedes that have the same lineup as 2020. Do they? Mercedes only have one driver at the moment, Botas. That's true. Uh, although, uh, you know, pretty one, every watch is assuming, including Formula1.com, that uh, Lewis Hamilton will be there, in fact. Um, so it's getting tight, though, isn't it? I that. mean, I, I can't believe we're almost a month from the first test. And, uh, well, and certainly less than a month from the car launch. I mean, they're certainly going to want to have their two drivers when they launch the W12 on the, on the 2nd of, of March. So the time so. is yeah. yeah the time is ticking here and uh, there are rumours that there's a two year contract on in the offing but uh, it's interesting it hasn't been signed yet and they've come up with every excuse known to mankind as to why they haven't signed it yet but uh, I think it's it's pretty interesting situation yeah it's true I I, I I still to me there's just like this momentum that where else would Lewis Hamilton go. And what else would he do? He's not going to just all of a sudden leave Formula One to focus on his clothing design. I, I, I just, it's going to happen one way or the other sooner or later. Hopefully, I mean, by we've had the first test. We've had world champions leave uh, the team after winning the championship. I mean, Hill in '96, Mansell in '92, a couple of good examples. Maybe well, he's going Hill, to IndyCar. It wasn't Hill's choice, to be fair. You know, Mansell. That was. I think retirement number one because Mansell went he went and raced Indy cars with Newman Haas and won that championship in 93 and uh, definitely did not make a friend in Mario Andretti that year <laughs> that's true yeah I mean I think most people are still 
still expecting it to get across the line. But it, uh, I, I mean, the question would be is let's say they, they reach an impasse and Hamilton decides not to sign whatever's put in front of him. Um, he's going to certainly be sitting on the sidelines for 21. And then who would Mercedes bring um, bring into the team for this season? I mean, it's, it, it's, it's as much rumour and innuendo as we could generate that the current reigning world champion, the seven-time world champ, Lewis Hamilton, doesn't have the contract for 2021. So yeah, that's a that's big true. story. I, I, listen, it's simple for Mercedes. If, if Lewis doesn't sign, sign, they yank George Russell from Williams and it's done and dusted and, and they just carry on winning. And uh, then it's Williams' problem and Williams can find another rich Canadian to uh, throw in the car and that'll be that. It's simple. You don't, that's a you don't think, you don't think Nick Hulkenberg... Yeah, she's got Magnussen, there's Hulkenberg, there's... Uh, Magnussen's busy. Magnussen's busy racing. Magnussen, Magnussen already has a 24-hour endurance race under his belt he, with IMSA, and he did quite well. And, I'm sure uh, he wouldn't leave that contract if a Mercedes seat was available. Never. Why not? <laughs> the contract is ironclad. As you well know, contracts are never broken in motorsport, ever. Yeah, no, it's it's fascinating that that is the case, but, you know, I'm, I'm still... It's... It's early enough in February that I'm still like, yeah, it's just just a matter of time. It's going to happen. Whatever silly nonsense is going on behind the scenes, just let it carry out, and that'll be that. I of of all these driver changes, which one are you most excited slash interested in seeing? Um, well, I think let's talk about the rookies. So, which of the three am I most excited about? Uh, start there. I think obviously it's Schumacher. I mean, if you I looked yeah. at the pedigree of the three. Obviously, he's the son of a seven-time world champion. He's the G- reigning GP2 champion. He won the European Formula 3 championship back in, in 2018. He's part of the Ferrari Academy. Uh, he's been karting uh, since he was nine. Um, you know, he seems the right sort of driver to be coming into the sport. Uh, excited to see how he goes and lives up to the Schumacher name. Hopefully, Michael, not Ralph. And then uh, Sonoda is a part of the Honda Formula Dream project and um, has uh, already tested pretty well in in Formula 1 machinery. Came third in the GP2 Championship last year. Uh, Won the F4 Japanese Championship in 18. Again, seems to have the right stuff. Uh, Some pundits are pretty excited about him um, and it's rumoured that if he goes well um, this year, he might even be in the frame for the Red Bull seat uh, next year. So... um, so he seems like an exciting prospect, and I think it's good to have a Japanese driver back on the grid as well. I'm, I'm happy to see that. Um, and then, and yeah, Nikita, Matt, Miss, yeah. Mr. Mason. <laughs> so he was in GP2 <laughs> for two seasons, a total of 46 entries, and managed two wins. So at least he's a winner in GP2. I'll give him credit for that, but he didn't uh, get close to championship. He's not actually won, uh, from what I can tell, uh, a serious uh, single-seat championship in his career. So, yeah, his credentials are a little bit more shaky. I guess uh, I've not seen him race, so I'll, 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 hold, uh, I'll hold my opinion until we, we do. But I would expect that Schumacher will handily uh, out, outperform him, perform him in the Haas this season, and, and uh, then only his uh, dad's money will keep him in the sport. I agree with you 100% on uh, everything you said. You know, Sanda is uh, is an interesting one i'm i find myself valuing experience more and more 
uh, as I myself age, and uh, I feel like he might be a bit young, but I agree with you that it's good to have a Japanese driver in the sport and to give the island that provides such great um, automotive uh, automotive machinery uh, someone to represent them. You know, I I and I think you know Japanese drivers are a lot of fun to watch. You know, Kumui Kobayashi is a lot of fun. Takuma Takuma Sato. Uh, so they're they're great characters in racing as well. So. Hopefully, Yuki will be great, although I, I am nervous he's a bit young. But, come on, uh, Fernando Alonso's back in the car, man. I mean, <laughs> this, that's I'm very excited to see what happens there. He's going to be 40 this year. I don't remember exactly when. And everyone is still expecting him to be just as quick. How quick is he going to be? How quick is the Alpine, Alpine race car going to be? There's a, there's a lot of fascination there. And is he going to have the patience for this? Yeah, I don't, you know, think he'll, he'll have lost too much pace since he's been out of Formula One. He's been very busy driving all sorts of other machinery. And, and you know, in all probability, he'll have learned from that and may even be quicker than he was before. I think he'll blow Ocon away. I don't really think Ocon will put up much of a fight. That'll probably end his career. Uh, Alpine, I, I don't know if they'll get... Yeah, they'll be, probably be in the fight for third in the championship, maybe. But uh, I don't see them making particularly much progress from last year to this. Uh, I think McLaren and Aston Martin might be too strong for them, actually, and, and maybe they'll be fighting more Ferraris. But I agree with you. I mean, Alonso being back is exciting, good for the sport. And there's some great matchups that'll be great to watch. Uh, Vettel, how well does he go in the Aston Martin? You know, Ricardo versus Norris, Saints versus Leclerc. I think those are all... Exciting things that are going to be fascinating well, and, to watch and play Perez out. and Verstappen. Yeah, you know, no, I'm not so excited about <clears throat> that one. Well, no, but there, I, I know, but but that's a huge question mark. Verstappen and his teammates. That's always been that's been a struggling point for a multiple seasons now, and Kvyat yeah. is now completely out again. But how is Perez going to appear against Verstappen? That is. That is, a, that is a huge question mark that I'm quite eager to see answered. Yeah, it's a massive question. And if, if as expected, Red Bull are able to mount a, a proper championship challenge uh, this season, then it's going to be, you know, it's going to be a lot of weight on his shoulders to particularly, you know, perform well and help them in the constructors uh, and support Verstappen in his fight against, you know, the Mercedes pair. But uh but yeah, I mean, I I know what I think is going to happen, but we'll see. I mean, it'll be great to see if Perez really can can take uh, this opportunity with both hands and and perform competitively. You know, get within the half a second consistently of Verstappen. Uh, you know, ideally closer, a couple of tenths off, would I think would be uh, considered a success. Put the car where it should be, which should be the second row of the grid, and finish. You know, probably compete with Bottas and try and finish on the podium. I mean, that's what he should be aiming to do every weekend. And if he can do that, then and I'll take my hats off to him. But uh, I, I have my doubts. Yeah, no, that's a fair point. And uh, going back to your previous point, I'm going to be quite fascinated to see, uh, to a certain extent, where the Alpine racing team starts, but critically, how their development pace is compared to the other big teams, because they were 
pushing they were heavy pushers for the cost cap for years that was they're one of the biggest proponents for it and now that they're getting the first round of cost cap are they prepared to actually uh, do something with that and and better cope with the financial limitations than the other teams or are they just going to assume that oh we have less of a disadvantage than before whereas um, the other teams might be looking and finding opportunities in this cost cap that Alpine is not and they actually suffer so that's that's an interesting focal point for me is, is to see how can Alpine develop their car compared to the other big teams well, and, and you know, we should we should point out that they've had a change in management. So, oh, that's right. Now, yes. Yeah, they 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 fired uh, uh, Cyril Cyril Arbitol was his name. So Cyril Cyril has been fired, and he's been replaced by uh, somebody with zero Formula One experience. <laughs> so uh, he has pedigree in racing in the racing world in bike racing. Um, but Cyril has gone and now they've uh, brought in and I'm just trying to check his name it's uh, Laurent Rossi I believe no 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 I apologize so it's David Brivio who is who was uh, very successful in MotoGP so Brivio comes in replaces uh, Arbitol um, and heads up the, the new newly christened Alpine Formula One team. So that's quite a shake-up. Now, of course, the organization and the team and the, and the engineers are all, I, I don't think there's been uh, any major changes since he took the helm, but but uh, that, um, that probably, I would think, is Renault pushing for success next season, putting the right pieces in place to be really competitive next year, when obviously we have the big uh, chassis uh, rule changes. I suspect, um, given the continuity in the chassis based on the regs that we talked about earlier, that there's unlikely to be a chance for Alpine to win the championship this year. So therefore, this might be a sort of a longer, a longer view play um, and probably won't help them, them this year. I mean, I've already read, you know, you've got McLaren switching powertrain. So they've gone from Renault to Mercedes power. Um, most people think that that will help their performance, not hinder it. And then also, I was reading an interesting article saying that Aston Martin actually might be one of the teams that is that can most benefit from this season, because all they really have to do is bolt on the rear suspension system from last year's Mercedes to upgrade their chassis pretty much to you know this year's Mercedes spec, and now they've had a season running the car, they they know how it behaves much better. So. The theory was that their potential for improvement is probably greater than a lot of the other midfield teams. Oh, so, yeah, so all that adds up to me that Alpine are going to struggle, and I suspect Ferrari will be more competitive this year as well and be fighting, um, if not for wins, certainly to try and take back their, you know, at least third place on, on in the field. So it's going to get tougher to to get those points if Ferrari are competitive again. Yeah, real quick, uh, just I wanted to clarify this just so. So Alpine is is going to have Laurent Rossi and uh, David uh, Brivio. Um, he's Rossi is given the title Chief Executive Officer and Brivio Racing Director. Uh, yeah. Pat Pat Fry is still there as Technical Director. Right. And uh, and then Remy, Remy Taffin, I believe. I hope I'm saying that correctly. Is uh, the Engine Technical Director. So Pat Fry is chassis. Remy is engine. And that is what. 
Alpine is going to have in terms of leadership. So that's fascinating and, that there's this is like dual team principals and then dual technical directors. It's fascinating to me. Yeah, but I think my, my understanding is Bruvio essentially replaces Cyril. Cyril, right? So so okay. Cyril was the face of the, the of Renault in a weekend and, and was Yep, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So I th so yeah, I mean what can what can he bring from MotoGP that maybe isn't being used in Formula One, you know, certainly a different perspective, right? So it you know, could bring a whole raft of different ideas and, and he's and gonna have ideas. a he's gonna have a big PowerPoint presentation on the importance of reducing rolling resistance. And it's going to point out how two tires instead of four have greatly reduced rolling resistance. And uh, that's what they're going to aim for. It's going to be brilliant. Yeah, so it's exciting. I think the other the other uh, one bit of news I had was that there's still a push for a second U.S. Grand Prix. Did you hear that? And Miami uh, is still in the frame, apparently. There's been a push for that for a long time. I'm still I, – I really liked the uh, New Jersey Grand Prix – uh, that overlooked, uh, you know, that had excellent views of the Manhattan skyline. And, you know, that just fell apart. Uh, you know, I would love a second USGP, of course, obviously, but I desperately want it to be at a proper racetrack. I don't, I really, I'm very nervous about a Miami Grand Prix just being another rinkety course. Like, I certainly don't want another Las Vegas GP or Dallas GP, um, you know, Detroit was okay, I think, but even that one was still iffy. So, what about going back to Indianapolis? That's <sighs> uh, owned by Roger Penske. I I would be open to that if anyone could pull it off. It would be Penske, but I I'm still suspicious. So, you know, I'd like be much happier. I'd be much much happier if they went to Laguna Seca or to uh, Road Atlanta or something like that than uh, Indianapolis, to be frank. Mm -hmm. But, you know. One thing I wanted to ask you about, so uh, uh, the three drivers that are no longer in Formula One uh, because of the three rookies replacing them are Romain Grosjean, Kevin Magnussen, and Daniel Kvyat. Romain Grosjean is testing for Dale Coyne Racing in IndyCar. Kevin Magnussen, as I said earlier, has a full-time IMSA ride in the DPI, which is Daytona Prototype International Class. And Daniel Kafiat, I don't think, has anything lined up. Have you heard anything about him? No, I mean, I'd heard that Grosjean had signed a deal to run all the street and road courses uh, for the Indy 21 season. He's just, he's just going to skip the ovals. Is that yeah. right? Yeah, so not uh, more than a testing deal. You said it was testing, so I, I no, 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 not that it was a testing deal. That he was testing the car. Okay, yeah. yeah. So that's great. I'm glad that he's found a good seat in a in in Indy cars, and so that's great news for him. Um, and um, but no, Kvyat, I think he's still on the periphery of of the Red Bull Empire, isn't he? So if someone as I someone doesn't, it, yeah. yeah. Someone doesn't perform, or yeah, he's a re basically a reserve driver for AlphaTauri or uh, the Red Bull uh, um, team. Well, that's Attention. another person to talk about, though. Is, well, Albon, yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, Albon, and you know his his reserve driver status. That was one that uh, he's not on my list. That should be Alex Albon. Yeah, so he's been given a seat in um, in the DTM, the the, yes. the German touring car. Uh, for this season as well as a reserve driver and, and from what I understand quite a bit of testing time so I think he'll do free practice and, and he might do some of the 
some of the testing uh, for the team. And so he's still in the mix, it looks like. But as we talked about earlier, it looks like he's already being yeah, really being pushed out. I think he blew his chance last year, didn't perform well enough. So Red Bull, as they typically do, will look forward, not back. So he's, you know, I think if Perez is a complete bomb for whatever reason, then Albon might come back into the frame. But I think Perez will really have to drop the ball for that to happen. Who do you think is farther into the periphery, Albon or Kafiat? I feel like it'd be ironic to me if Kafiat ends up in a race at AlphaTauri for some bizarre reason before Albon does. Yeah, I, I think you're right. I think Kvyat is is further out uh, than Albon. I mean, it looks like Red Bull have gone to some efforts to try and, you know, give him some something to do this year, despite not having a race seat. But I think, you know, I, I mean, I guess this comes to the internal politics, doesn't it? It's like uh, uh, if who ha really has the final say at AlphaTauri when they want to put a, a reserve driver in is it you know which team principal gets to have that say I don't know but but you know you have to say that Kofiat's had had his chance hasn't he he's had a couple of bites of the cherry he had his time at Red Bull he's had uh, his time at AlphaTauri so um, I think I, I'd be very surprised if we really see him in an F1 car again but it does appear that that's that's his only option at this point is to is to hope that there's, you know, um, some some terrible tragedy <laughs> in the Red Bull driver lineup that might result <laughs> in coming back. Oh man, yeah. So, Chris, I want to thank you again for this. is just a fantastic conversation about Formula One. I really missed it, and it's only early February, which gives me some uh, hope that we're going to have a great uh, podcasting season for 2021, in addition to a great Formula One season for 2021. Um, Although I do want to end on a slightly personal note, this is the eight-year anniversary of my massive accident uh, where I fell off a bridge and ended up in a coma for a couple of weeks and, uh, and uh, all those other things broke a lot of, broke a lot of things. And um, I just wanted to take a moment to say uh, that I'm very grateful for this podcast and that... Doing this podcast and hosting it has was when I was recovering one of the things I most looked forward to doing, and I absolutely believe it helped my recovery. And so on this anniversary, it's just a nice reminder uh, of all the things that make me feel so lucky. And so I just want to take a moment to really thank everyone listening because that's why this podcast exists. So... I mean it very sincerely when I say very much thank you for listening because uh, I, I have a, I'm still alive and have a more full life now than I ever would have if it weren't for this podcast. So uh, it's, you know, it's a little bit of a like, you know, it might seem a little overly sentimental, but, you know, it's the eight-year anniversary today. So please forgive me for a bit of sentiment. Well, I mean, I think I speak for everyone involved with the pod or who listens to the pods that we're very happy that you're uh, that you're here and uh, and doing and doing the pod and such fine work mate so uh, glad that you're uh, obviously I mean you had this accident before we met but uh, glad that you're able to make obviously a full recovery that's right and uh, and because of that I can tell you and you have no way of being proven wrong uh, without uh, having to trust anecdotal evidence that I was an absolute genius before the accident, and now I'm just merely 
average intelligence, but you just you should have known I was freaking Einstein before February 7th, 2013. But anyway, I want to thank you for listening. Please take a moment to review us on iTunes or on whatever platform you get our podcasts. Please leave comments on the episode of your choice by going to funwithcars.com. As always, I can be reached at feedback at funwithcars.com. Tweet us at fun underscore with underscore cars. And check out our Facebook page at facebook.com slash fwcars. Christopher Roche, it's only February and we're talking about Formula One. What a wonderful day. What a wonderful day, and happy Super Bowl day, everyone who's uh, oh, thinking yes, more about football. Exactly. But if you're not thinking about football, here's an F1 distraction. <laughs> yeah, exactly right. Oh, yeah, that's going on. I'm Robin Warner. Goodbye.